So we're taking the summer to, to walk through the book of Ecclesiastes, um, which most scholars believe was written by King Solomon of Israel. And uh, he was a king who lived and ruled around 3,000 years ago. And in this book, he's brutally honest as he reflects about a time in his life when he was searching for meaning and happiness. To use a philosophical term, uh, Solomon was facing an existential crisis. According to uh, Wikipedia, this is what that means. An existential crisis is a moment at which an individual questions the very foundations of their life, whether their life has any meaning, purpose, or value. So that's where he was. And right from the beginning, we noticed that Solomon uses a certain phrase over and over again. It's a Hebrew word that can be translated um, meaningless. Um, some Bibles translate the word vanity, uh, but the most literal definition of the Hebrew word is vapor. So just like the vapor of your breath on a cold winter day, um, it's there for a second, uh, but then it disappears. And if you try to grasp it, you come up empty. And so right from the start, Solomon says, in this search for meaning in, in my life, every angle that I'm trying is coming up with, with nothingness. So again, just listen to, that, listen to that concept in the passage today. So when you open up chapter two of Ecclesiastes, um, he describes another way that he tried to, to solve this existential crisis and find fulfillment in life. So let's look at the passage. Ecclesiastes two, we're gonna read the first 11 verses. I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. So at one point in Solomon's search for happiness, he decided, I'm going to try to maximize the pleasure that I experience in life. So verse one, I said to myself, come now, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what is good. So in this section, we're gonna see three things about pleasure. We're gonna see the pursuit of pleasure, we're gonna see the problem with pleasure, and then we'll talk about the truth about pleasure. So pursuing it, the problem that Solomon discovered when he, he carried out that pursuit, and then what is really the truth about it. So first, the pursuit of pleasure. You know the big difference between Solomon and us? I think the, the big difference is the things that we can only dream about, the things that we can only experience a little taste of, um, Solomon could have in unlimited amounts. Um, I mean, he had access to anything. And he talks about four kinds of pleasure that he went after. 
So, first kind, the pleasure of partying. In verse 3, he says, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. Can you imagine the parties that Solomon must have put on? 1 Kings 10.21 says, all of King Solomon's drinking vessels were made of pure gold. And you know he served the finest wines, the best food, and he had the best entertainers. In fact, did you notice that he talks about acquiring male and female singers? You and I might hire musicians for a party. Solomon acquired them. He just kept them after the party. So he says, I tried to cheer myself with wine, and I tried embracing folly. In other words, I dove into the party life. I didn't want to be one of those stiff leaders who didn't know how to have any fun, you know? I wanted to be less of a, of a Vladimir Putin-type leader and a little more of a Bill Clinton. You get the idea, right? Just loosen up a little. I wanted to be a guy who knew how to have a good time. And yet, all the while, it says in verse 3, this is interesting, my mind was still guiding me with wisdom. So even when he was engaged in the party, he didn't get so drunk that he lost awareness. He was able to step back, almost like he was watching himself, you know, from outside himself, and go, hmm, wine, dancing. Is this, is this working? Is this fulfilling me? Could this be what it's all about? Next, he talks about the pleasure of projects. So lest you think that Solomon was just, you know, a drunken fool, um, he, he wasn't. He didn't stay in bed till noon the day after the party and, you know, have breakfast brought into his, into his chambers. He got up early and he worked hard. It was a highly driven, highly productive man. So he says, I built houses for myself. And that's an understatement. Um, besides his main palace, which was impressive enough, he built a second home in the forest of Lebanon, which was like HGTV dream home times 10. It was huge. It was three stories high, the equivalent of a three-story high building. If you looked at the length of it, it covered, if you had taken a 15-story building and put it on its side, it was that wide. It was made of pure cedar. Um, it was decorated with rare, valuable objects. And oh yeah, he built another house for his Egyptian wife, the first woman that he married, um, just because he could. And then he was done building houses, but he still had an itch to create. And so he says, I planted vineyards which explains where he got all the wine for his parties. I made gardens and parks. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. Are you getting the, the feel for the energy and the ambition and the creativity that, that Solomon had? Um, it seems like this was a guy who was never done. He would never say, okay, I'm good now. I'm done upgrading. I'm done building. Um, there was always another project. You know anybody like that? They can never be done. You know, if they finish a project in the yard, in the house, it's just, this is going to be the next one. The idea of being done is just not in their, in their vocabulary, living for the next project. So he was, he was an ambitious, constructive guy. And then he talks about the pleasure of possessions. When you're the king, you have lots of money because you tax your people. But when you're the most powerful king in, in the area, um, it gets even better. Um, verse 8 says, he had amassed the treasure of kings and provinces. Now, that was mostly because his father, David, who was really a, a king who went to war a lot, um, had established Israel as the dominant nation in the region by conquering everyone around him. And when you conquered nations, you took their money. 
That's just, that's just what you did. So Solomon had inherited all that, and then ongoing, if you've conquered nations, it was common to require those nations to pay tribute to you, which was basically like protection money. Like, keep paying us, and we won't attack you again. So basically, what I'm saying is the money kept rolling in. And with that money, Solomon bought stuff. Verse 7 says, I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. By the way, this is a good example of the fact that the Bible often records things because they happened, but the fact that it records things doesn't mean that it's approving of those things. So that's a great example. He, he bought slaves for himself. The Bible records it, but the Bible doesn't say, and that was a great thing, but it happened. He says, I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself. So just picture attending one of Solomon's parties, probably would have been in the, in the second house in the forest of Lebanon. And imagine if you were privileged enough to be invited on a tour of his home. Can you imagine just the opulence that you would have seen? A couple of, uh, about two years ago, I think my wife and I went on a tour of uh, the Rockefeller Mansion up on the Hudson River. Some of you guys have been there. It's called Kaikit. Amazing place. You go out in the yard of this home and you see these sculptures. There's there's uh, out in the yard, there's an original uh, Picasso sculpture. There are other sculptures imported from Asia, imported from Europe. You see this rolling lawn that goes down to the huts and this incredible view of the river. You see rose gardens and fountains and pools and patios. You go into the house and you see the servants' quarters. You see the gentleman's smoking room. You see the huge dining room. You go down in the basement of this home and you see his art collection, originals by Andy Warhol and Mark Chagall and Picasso. I mean, everywhere you look, you just go, whoa. And I imagine walking around Solomon's home was a similar experience. Just everyone's mouth dropping open saying, this is incredible. Because whatever he wanted, he bought and he put in his homes. And then one more thing, he talks about the pleasure of passion. In verse 8, he says he acquired a harem. And if you read 1 Kings chapter 11, it gives a little more detail on his love life. It says Solomon had, you ready? 700 wives plus 300 concubines. Another example of the Bible recording things that happened without giving approval to it. Um, In case you're wondering what a concubine is, they didn't have the level of status of a wife. They were basically there just to serve the sexual needs of the king. So think about what this means. Solomon never had to experience sexual frustration because anytime he had an urge, women were lined up to satisfy his every desire. Thursday morning, a couple of mornings ago, I saw this television ad for uh, Volvo. And the tagline in the ad was, it came up on the screen, what is luxury? And then the answer came up, it's having everything you want exactly when you want it. And I heard that and I went, that's Solomon. He must have driven a Volvo. (laughs) Because he had everything he wanted exactly when he wanted it. So the point is, the point of all of this is, if meaning in life if satisfaction and happiness in life could be achieved by maximizing pleasure. In other words, words, that's a pure hedonistic philosophy, right? That says life is about maximizing pleasure, minimizing pain. If you can do that, you'll be fulfilled and happy. 
So if that would really deliver, Solomon should have been the most fulfilled, happy person who walked the earth. Everything he wanted exactly when he wanted it. He should have been ecstatic. But he wasn't. He wasn't. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the problem with pleasure. In verse 1, he really doesn't make you wait, right, to give a conclusion. Right in the first verse, he says, pursuing this life of pleasure proved to be meaningless. He uses that vapor word. And then in the last verse, after he talks about this amazing estate and all his possessions and all his women, here's how he summarizes the whole thing in verse 11. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. So think about this. After experiencing what we can only dream of experiencing, right? After he had experienced the most amazing cuisine, the finest wines, the most challenging construction projects, after that night's beautiful, exotic woman had left his bedroom, he lay alone in his bed, and he stared at the ceiling, and he felt lost. To quote from an old Simon and Garfunkel song, I'm empty and aching, and I don't know why. Why would that be? How could that be? I think there are lots, lots of reasons. Let, let me just give you two. First reason, I think, is this concept of diminishing returns. The problem with partying and projects and, and, and uh, passion and possessions is you can never really have enough. Right? So... If you need three drinks now to make you feel really good, um, the fourth one will start calling your name, and you'll want that to really make you feel good. Um, years ago, you were just content with that little deck you built on the back of your house, right? Years later, it's kind of pathetic, and you need more things to build. The deck is just not delivering like, like it did before. Um, if we're depending on pleasure to fulfill us, over time, you get less fulfillment from the same things, and you need to always increase your stimulation. A movie that came out a few years ago called Four Christmases. It really wasn't very good, um, but it starred Vince Vaughn and Reese Witherspoon, who can make pretty much anything funny. And it's a movie about this couple. Right before Christmas, they were planning to take this exotic vacation together, um, and just kind of get away from all, get away from it all, and uh, they were heading to Fiji. So here was the conversation that took place as they lay in bed in the morning, planning their vacation. Oh, by the way, I made a couple's massage reservation for this weekend. You did? That's great. Yeah, I should probably check us in online after this. I did it. You checked us in already? You're the best, sweetheart. I picked up a pair of those noise-canceling headphones you wanted. You did not. I'm excited. We should probably sign up for the scuba boat as soon as we get there. I heard it fills up really quick. Do you feel like we've been on this vacation before? The scuba diving, we did that in Bali in Costa Rica. Yeah, but this is Fiji. We've never been to Fiji. That's a whole different island. And the resort there is beautiful. And the scuba diving there is going to be totally different. It's different water, different fish. It's going to be really good. I'm excited. It's going to be amazing. Are you excited? I am. I'm really excited. I'm excited. <laughs> and it turns out, they weren't that excited because they canceled the vacation and they wind up spending Christmas with their, with their crazy family. Um, again, that's really the only good part of the movie, so don't see the movie. <laughs> but the most luxurious things, scuba diving in Fiji, the most exotic things in life, stop delivering after a while, diminishing returns. And I know some of you are thinking, well, I'd like to find out by experience. 
but that's why we have Solomon. Here's one other problem with pursuing pleasure, self-focus. Everything that Solomon mentions in this section is intensely focused on himself. It's about his projects, his accomplishments, his possessions, his sexual needs, and he's doing all those things to find out how they'll affect his happiness and his satisfaction. You know, every time I do premarital counseling, we talk about God's design for for human flourishing. In other words, how did God set up life to work best? So we go all the way back to the book of Genesis where God created Adam and he stood back and he said, it's not good for him to be alone. That was God's, God's assessment. So he created Eve and he put them together and that was now the original human community. And God says, that's good. Because the way that people experience shalom, which means not only peace, but wholeness and flourishing, which is exactly what Solomon was looking for, right? He was looking for peace and wholeness and flourishing. It's another way to say happiness, meaning in life. The way we find that is not by focusing on ourselves. We get that by focusing on and serving and giving ourselves to others. So I think this is one of the big takeaways from Ecclesiastes. If I feel unfulfilled or unhappy, and if the way that I address that is very self-centered, if it doesn't draw me into community with other people at all, it's probably not going to work that well. So if I turn to alcohol, if I turn to pornography, those things will just draw me into the prison of myself, and that is misery. If I turn to much more respectable things, like you know, getting in great shape and, and going to the gym, or transforming my yard with, with, with pavers and mulch and trees, or leasing that new Mercedes, You know, none of those things are intrinsically wrong or sinful in themselves, right? But Solomon is trying to tell us they're not going to deliver what you think because they're all about you. The challenge is we are such naturally self-centered people that we need some great force to come along and to knock us out of the center of our own lives. And I don't think that there's any greater force to do that than the gospel of Christ, to knock us out of the center. In Tim Keller's book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, he gives, I would say, a variation of the classic definition of humility. Listen to this, this line. The thing that we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-humble person is how much they seemed to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. See, Solomon's problem, a part of his problem, was that he wasn't really interested in other people, right? He doesn't really talk about that much. He was absorbed in himself, like all of us tend to be, and the gospel has the power to change that. So what are we supposed to learn from all of this? Let's talk about the truth about pleasure. And let me just put that under two two headings. First heading is idolatry versus enjoyment. Idolatry versus enjoyment. When we make the ultimate purpose of our life our own pleasure, we're choosing to live in a really small world. It's a really confined world. Um, Notice the familiar phrase again in verse 11. He says, nothing was gained under the sun, which brings us back to Solomon the goldfish. There he is again. 
He's confined to this small world. It it reminds us that King Solomon was limiting his search to the things that we can experience in this world with our human senses and with our, our natural minds. So listen, when we insist on looking at life like that, when we say no, the world doesn't have any supernatural, doesn't have any divine involvement, we will find something under the sun to worship. <laughs> because we are natural-born worshipers. And so if we don't seek something above the sun, we'll find something under the sun to worship. So in this section, Solomon says, I, I chose pleasure as the ultimate good in life. In other words, he chose to worship pleasure. And anytime we worship anything other than the true God, it will disappoint us and break our hearts. But having said that, if you read closely, he's not condemning pleasure. Listen to what he says in in verse 10, second part of the verse. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. So he says, while I was working on these projects, and I I was supervising the teams that were building these things, it was enjoyable. I got some satisfaction out of that. Um... You know the feeling, don't you? When you're doing something that's, that's constructive, specifically, you know, you're out and you're working on your yard, you're raking leaves, you're power washing the house or something like that, and you're breathing the fresh air, it feels good, right? There's some enjoyment in that. There's delight in that. So I think this is what Solomon is saying. Pleasure is not meant to be idolized, but it is meant to be enjoyed. In fact, that idea is going to show up a few more times as we go through this book. Learn to enjoy the pleasurable things in life as gifts from God. Good food, exercise, music and art, friendship, sex within marriage, a great comedian, an absorbing book, you know, a stimulating movie. Enjoy those things as gifts from God, but never expect them to give you ultimate meaning, like Solomon was trying to do. They cannot bear the weight of your worship. Keep them in their proper place. You know how you can tell that you've gone beyond enjoyment and gone into idolizing something? I think one of the truest tests is how you respond when that thing that you enjoy is messed with, when life messes with it a little bit. For example, let's say you enjoy your yard. You know, some of you this time of year, you know, you're working on your yard. So you like your yard, you like your lawn. And then let's say life messes with that thing because you get moles that infest your yard. Okay? Now, if you get a little annoyed and you try to get rid of the moles, you probably have a healthy relationship with your lawn. You're not idolizing it. But if you lie in bed at night and you dream of ways to slowly kill the moles... And you feel angry and embarrassed that your lawn has these lumps in it. You've probably gone to idolizing your lawn because it just bothers you too much. You can often tell when life messes with that thing. So how important is that thing to you? Do you just enjoy it or do you idolize it? All right, here's one more truth about pleasure. Joy is better than pleasure. Joy is greater than pleasure. Um, do you know that it's possible to be experiencing great pleasure and not have any joy at the same time? Um, I was thinking about what Solomon said at, at the beginning of the passage. He says, I tried embracing laughter and folly, you know, and laughter is a great gift, right? I mean, it's, it feels good to laugh. But then these names started coming into my mind one after the other. John Belushi. John Candy, Chris Farley, Robin Williams, 
The names kept coming. You know what all those guys had in common? They were so funny. I mean, brilliant comedians. They could bring the house down. You know what else they had in common? They all died young, either by suicide or by just being so miserable they treated themselves so bad it might as well have been suicide. And then I thought about something that Solomon wrote in Proverbs. <laughs> Proverbs 14, 13. Listen to these words. Even in laughter the heart may ache, and rejoicing may end in grief. Isn't that true? That even while Robin Williams was making us laugh, we didn't even know it, but his heart was aching. Guys, we have to understand this, that it is possible to experience great pleasure on the outside, just like, like Solomon was. And people could look at your life and say, this guy's living the life. I mean, parties, possessions, projects, pleasure, the whole, he's got it all. And on one level, you're, you're getting pleasure out of those things, right? But on a deeper level, you're hollow and you're joyless. That can happen. So, so here's my point. Joy is greater than pleasure. So don't, don't make your goal in life, like Solomon was trying to experiment with, don't make your goal in life pleasure. Um, make it joy. And here's what I think you'll find, that sometimes the deepest joy in life doesn't come at times of pleasure. It actually comes through times of suffering and sacrifice. Isn't that, isn't that a strange thought? Sometimes the deepest joy in life comes not through pleasure, it comes through suffering and sacrifice, which is really good news, I think. Because sometimes God calls us to seasons of life where there's not a lot of pleasure. Sometimes God calls us to, to times where there are breakups and there are divorces and there are sickness and layoffs and financial tightness, all kinds of unpleasant things. So if hedonism were correct, right? If happiness and joy resulted from the maximizing of pleasure, if it's really about all that happens under the sun and the things that we get to enjoy here, you should be miserable during those times. But some of you guys know this from personal experience. You can have deep joy, actually, during those times. Not because you're experiencing so much pleasure, but because you're connected to Jesus Christ. Because listen, he is, Jesus is, our mentor and our model and our example of how to walk in deep joy even through times of sacrifice, even through times of suffering. And we're, we're surrounded by this culture that is so pleasure-obsessed, that's so easy to forget that, which is why he gave us this thing called communion. And so we're going to remember that this morning. Servers who are going to be helping out, would you go back and get us ready to serve while we prepare our hearts for communion?